Okay, so last time, remember, we went over kind of a big picture about reading the Old Testament. And really, we're going to kind of use this again and again, especially through the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, I just highlighted one because the point that I'm going to try to make today, remember, we read the Bible primarily as a story, not as a book that is meant to primarily to give us a nice, neat list of doctrines. The Bible is a story. Okay, and if we read the book of Jeremiah as a story, rather than we're looking for a key verse here and there, uh, I think really an incredible dimension and meaning uh, comes out in all of this. Okay, so it's always helpful. Remember, we're trying to understand the context. So after the splitting of the kingdoms, okay, we've got Israel and Judah, Babylonian captivity, I'm sorry, Assyrian captivity, 722 B.C., and we have only left the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, and so we're in this period of time from wicked king Manasseh, who eventually uh, repented in the end of his life, all the way down to Zedekiah and the Babylonian captivity. Remember, there were three invasions, and then finally the last here in 586. Now, just uh, as a point here, first it's interesting, just, this is a long period of time. Okay, Jeremiah was born uh, during the reign of Manasseh, okay, but he was uh, given his mission when Josiah was king, when he was very young, only 19 or 20, okay, and he gave a message to all of these kings, all the way through Zedekiah and even past, as we'll see, so um, his ministry really spanned an incredibly long period of time, and just also to illustrate what's happening, you know, Assyria had been the power and now we have uh, the Babylonians coming to power. So these are, you know, historical facts here that uh, Babylon conquered Assyria in 612, and then Egypt in 605, and then finally uh, Jerusalem. Okay, so remember, uh, Jeremiah was young here when he was given this uh, mission by God. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah in the 13th year that Josiah, son of Ammon, was king of Judah, and he spoke to him again when Josiah's son Jehoiakim was king. After that, the Lord spoke to him many times until the 11th year of the reign of Zedekiah, so through all of these kings. Now, it's just an interesting thing to point out here. Notice, Zedekiah, was he really the son of Josiah? Well, you could still say that in biblical terms, even if someone was the the grandson or the great-grandson, the descendant of the well-known king Josiah. And then in the fifth month of that year, the people of Jerusalem were taken into exile. Okay, so uh, Jeremiah here gets this message when he's... Um, maybe even a teenager. And so he said, Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. And most people feel this isn't, you know, like uh, Moses saying, I can't speak. Uh, that, you know, not, not necessarily that he wasn't eloquent, but that at that time, for someone that young to be a prophet, um, to give a message, it just was kind of unheard of. So perhaps this is why he just felt, uh, you know, there's no way I can at this age give the message. So if we put a little uh, details on this, so we have from Manasseh uh, reign, Jeremiah was born during this period of time. As we go through the kings here, Jeremiah was called by God around the age 19 or 20. And then we go through these other kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachim, Zedekiah. And uh, so some people have gone through and they've broken down because unfortunately the book of Jeremiah, it's not neatly chronologically uh, ordered. And so... Uh, you know, we have some things here that happen even in Jeremiah 24 that's at the very end of the story. 
Okay, and we have other things here that happen much earlier chronologically. Here it is in chapter 36. So it's helpful to kind of, you know, try to piece it together and just to recognize when we read through the book, it's, it's not entirely in a chronologically um, organized. Okay, and so again, he was still giving his message after the fall of Jerusalem, and Jeremiah died sometime around 580 BC, so he was 65. Okay, this is really a long, long uh, ministry. And I show this picture with absolutely no political intent whatsoever. But uh, George Bush recently turned 65, so I found a picture of him when he was 19 or 20, and just kind of gives us an idea here. Jeremiah was very young, and then who knows how he looked uh, when we talk about the rough treatment he received, but when he was 65, so a lifelong ministry. And uh, from extra-biblical sources and tradition, the Apocrypha, Jeremiah was stoned to death. Okay, it's at around 65. So we'll get to that part of the story. So again, nothing really fancy about this Bible study. If we're going to put together the story of Jeremiah, we just need to read. Uh, we need to read the story and find out what happened. So I've tried to just pull out um, key passages that will give us a sense about uh, reading this book as a story. So from the beginning, the Lord said to me, Do not say that you are too young, but go to the people I send you to and tell them everything I command you to say. Do not be afraid of them, for I will be with you to protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then the Lord reached out, touched my lips, and said to me, Listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. It's kind of like with Isaiah. Remember, he was given the coal that touched his lips. But uh, what does this mean in a, in a literal sense here? I mean, Jeremiah didn't become a ruler of an army. He didn't physically conquer anyone. So in what sense did he have authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and pull down, to destroy and overthrow? Uh, This concept is um, repeated several times. Just a few chapters later, God would say, I am now making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall devour them. It's an interesting way of expressing here the effect of the message of Jeremiah that would destroy, that it would burn things up. And then finally in Jeremiah 23, my message is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Well, again, if we're going to try to take the Bible as a whole to bring meaning to uh, especially things we'll come to in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we want to kind of put these things in the back of our mind and remember uh, the description here. Uh, This is the one tangent we're going to go off on very briefly, uh, away from Jeremiah as a story, but it just brought to mind the description of judgment in the Gospel of John, the effect of judgment. And these verses are rather surprising, uh, actually, that uh, Jesus would say, the Father judges no one. Okay, we just let that sink in for a minute. The Father judges no one. He's given the Son the full right to judge. Okay, and... So how do we interpret that? Are we relieved that maybe a more uh, sympathetic member of the Godhead is, is the judge? Or you know, what, what kind of theology are we, are we putting to this? Okay, later on in John, Jesus would say, I came to this world to judge, but notice the effect of judgment. So that the blind should see and those who see should become blind. What does that mean? Judgment, if it causes some to see and others to be blinded. Um, what is that describing? Um, and many have, have gone into this. This is not the, the time to go into this subject in detail, but judgment as revelation, judgment as revealing, 
something, something that either hardens or softens. Okay, and so truth, um, especially God in human form, right there. I mean, that, that is a powerful moment if you're receiving that message. And so there's a choice to accept, and if you accept, you come into the light, and if you reject it, you are blind. So, so judgment as a revealing process that has an effect within us. And of course, if you reject that, it's devastating, isn't it? So it's kind of like here the message of Jeremiah. He comes with the word from God to a people who are spiritually just about ready to fall off a cliff. Okay, it's, it's a desperate, um, you know, they have to receive this message. They didn't, and they were destroyed. Okay, it wasn't something God imposed on them. It was a, a kind of a, a natural consequence of refusing to believe the message. Okay, and just one other here on judgment, here at the end of John. Jesus would say, those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Okay, who's the ultimate judge? The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. Okay, how are we judged by words? Well, there's a lot to this, and maybe I I shouldn't bring this up as just a point in passing. But if we just read back a few verses here in John 12, you know, Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one, things like that. Jesus came to reveal God to the world. And if, if that is rejected, um, again, we're in the darkness. And that is the judge on the last day. Okay, so it's, it's a devastating consequence. We could see it that way as opposed to something necessarily that is imposed by God. And certainly we see that in the message of Jeremiah. Well, we'll say a lot more on that, but let's come back here to Jeremiah and ask a very basic question. You know, in medicine, what's the first step? You've got to make the right diagnosis. Okay, what's the diagnosis here? Well, patient has pneumonia. If we're treating the patient for asthma, visit after visit, and the patient really has pneumonia, the patient's not going to get better. So we've got to make the right diagnosis. And so if we're trying to make the right uh, spiritual diagnosis, the right diagnosis of the people in this time, that would be really important, especially if we're going to understand what would be a meaningful treatment for the problem. And I think Jeremiah is pretty clear in terms of what's the diagnosis. We have it several times. First, talking about the priests. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priests did not know me. Now, we have said, I said last time that uh, this, this key passage in John, eternal life, is to know God, and that that involves so much. It's knowing the truth about God's character, having an intimate relationship with God. There's, there's much to that. And so the words here, the priest did not know me. Okay, this is a very significant uh, diagnosis. They have no idea what God is like. They're not worshiping the true God. We have the same diagnosis about the people. My people are stupid. They don't know me. There it is again. They are like foolish children. They have no understanding. Okay, no understanding about what? They have no understanding about God. Okay, so this is, again, a devastating diagnosis. And we also have here a suggestion. This is what God is really looking for. The Lord says the wise should not boast of their wisdom, nor the strong of their strength, nor the rich of their wealth. If any want to boast, they should boast that they know and understand me. Okay, so this eternal life is to know God. It's not just a New Testament concept. Uh, here we see in, in Jeremiah, the, the, it's the key essence. Okay, this is what they were missing. This is what led to their spiritual ruin. So just a question here, that the wise should boast that they know and understand me. Okay, what would we know and understand about God? 
that would be so important. We just read on, because my love is constant, and I do what is just and right. Okay, didn't God in human form reveal this to really be true? God's love is constant, and he always does what is just and right. Okay, so this is kind of getting a little bit at at, uh, the essence of what that uh, eternal life process is. Okay, so this is the the diagnosis. Now, let's spend just a a little bit now talking about the message of Jeremiah, and then we'll get into kind of the, the story aspect. Okay, so these are just some passages, mainly from the first uh, third of Jeremiah. His message to the people. No other nation has ever changed its gods, even though they were not real. But my people have exchanged me, the God who has brought them honor, for gods that can do nothing for them. Israel, you brought this on yourself. You deserted me, the Lord your God, while I was leading you along the way. What do you think you will gain by going to Egypt to drink water from the Nile? What do you think you will gain by going to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? And this is the only verse I've put in here uh, on this subject, but all of the kings in the threat to Babylon, their, their desire was to get help from other nations. They wanted help from the Egyptians. They wanted to get help from the Assyrians. And Jeremiah's you know, repeated message to the kings was, uh, nope, don't go get help from the Egyptians or the Assyrians. Uh, trust me, do it another way. Okay, so... This this was repeated several times. You will all be disgraced, you that say that a tree is your father and that a rock is your mother, so referring to idolatry. This will happen because you turned away from me instead of turning to me. But when you were in trouble, you asked me to come and save you. Where are the gods that you made for yourself? When you are in trouble, let them save you if they can. Judah, you have as many gods as you have cities. What is your complaint? Why have you rebelled against me? I punished you, but it did no good. You would not let me correct you. Now, what do we call, what's another word for punishment that is meant to correct, to reform? Discipline. You could fairly translate this as discipline. Okay, this is for a reason. It's not a retributive punishment. It's to stimulate something positive. Like a raging lion, you have murdered your prophets. Okay, and I think just kind of speaking to the spiritual blindness here, Uh, repeated many times, you deny that you have sinned. And God would say, only admit that you are guilty and that you have rebelled against the Lord. Confess that under every green tree you have given your love to foreign gods. So it's very difficult if someone is just in complete denial that there's a problem, that there's an issue. Um, I think it's part of the reason we see God having to, to speak harshly at times in Jeremiah. I mean, even threatening. How do you reach someone that thinks there isn't a problem, that thinks they're just fine? And and there's more evidence of that here in Jeremiah 7. Stop believing those deceitful words. We are safe. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. Temple. So, you know, they're they're thinking, well, we have God's temple, so surely we're safe. So really they're they're deluded, and, and it's hard to reach someone who's in that state. Okay, reading on. The Lord says, Israel, I wanted to accept you as my child and give you a delightful land, the most beautiful land in all the world. I wanted you to call me father, and never again turn away from me. But like an unfaithful wife, you have not been faithful to me. I, the Lord, have spoken. A noise is heard on the hilltops. It is the people of Israel crying and pleading, because they have lived sinful lives and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return all of you who have turned away from the Lord. He will heal you and make you faithful. And so, you know, even mixed in with the harsh words uh, through Jeremiah, again and again, there's, there's the promise. You know what? If you just turn back, 
hear God, he can still heal. He can still uh, restore. He can still do something good. So we always have that message that is kind of a thread that runs through Jeremiah. By the way, noise on the hilltops. The hilltops are always where the, the foreign gods are worshipped. Now, we'll come back to this verse. I think it's really important. But in Jeremiah 7.31, in Hinnom Valley, they have built an altar called Topheth so that they can sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. I did not command them to do this. It did not even enter my mind. Kind of interesting expression from God uh, to say that. But Hinnom Valley here is very important uh, to our understanding of hell. You know, when Jesus said it's better to cut your hand off than to enter the fires of hell, uh, this is Hinnom Valley. Okay, so, which became the, the garbage dump, where the garbage was burned. Okay, so if we're, again, trying to construct an image, what is hell? Okay, we need to go back, take the, the story all the way back to the Old Testament. And we will do that in uh, maybe the next Bible study on Jeremiah. Okay, but this, I, I just bring this up now to just bring to, to mind how severe this was. I mean, you're, you're offering your children to foreign gods. And this is, all the way through the Bible, this is the hallmark of paganism. Okay, the gods are always angry. They always need lots of blood, lots of child sacrifice to, to keep them happy. Okay, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because of passages like this. My sorrow cannot be healed. And sometimes, as you read this, it's hard for me to determine who's talking. Is this Jeremiah or God in some of these passages? My sorrow cannot be healed. I am sick at heart. My heart has been crushed because my people are crushed. I mourn. I'm completely dismayed. Is there no medicine in Gilead? Are there no doctors there? Why then have my people not been healed? I wish my head were a well of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I could cry day and night for my people who've been killed. I wish I had a place to stay in the desert where I could get away from my people. They are all unfaithful, a mob of traitors. I guess maybe a question to ask is, uh, would, would God join with Jeremiah in, in feeling that way about his people? Okay, is Jeremiah more sympathetic in this than God? Well, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that, I, but I think, I think we could say certainly God uh, exceeds Jeremiah in compassion for these people. And this is how bad it would get. I mean, why is the message so, so harsh at times? If you've just sat down and read through large portions, portions of Jeremiah, uh, there are some pretty harsh words of God to the people. But this is where they're headed. The enemy will surround the city and try to kill its people. The siege will be so terrible that the people inside the city will eat one another and even their own children. And this siege that lasted over two years, where the Babylonians surrounded the city, I mean, you could just imagine how, how horrible this was. And so, you know, just imagine yourself a parent and you see your children just headed for something that's going to be devastating. You wouldn't just give them loving words. I mean, you would... You would threaten. You would do just about anything you could to try to, to get them turned around. Okay, so that's just a little bit uh, on the message. We'll come back a lot to that in subsequent Bible studies. Now let's just get to the story uh, part of Jeremiah. Just some interesting things here. In Jeremiah 11, the Lord informed me of the plots that my enemies were making against me. Jeremiah was continually in danger. I was like a trusting lamb taken out to be killed. Now, does that remind us of anyone? A trusting lamb taken out to be killed. And I did not know that it was against me. They were planning evil things. They were saying, let's chop down the tree while it's still healthy. Let's kill him so that no one will remember him anymore. 
and a case I will try to make in this Bible study when we get to the end is that Jeremiah is really a, uh, a reflection, perhaps a dim reflection of Jesus in, in his ministry, his very faithful ministry, like a trusting lamb taken out to be killed. And the Lord spoke to me and said, I mean, how would you like to be a prophet of God? It's, uh, we go through the different uh, prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, this was not a very pleasant job. And he told Jeremiah, do not marry or have children in a place like this. I will tell you what is going to happen to the children who are born here and to their parents. They will die of terrible diseases and no one will mourn for them or bury them. Their bodies will, will lie like piles of manure on the ground. They will be killed in war or die of starvation and their bodies will be food for the birds and the wild animals. Better not to have kids. Okay, and just reading on. The people said, let's do something about Jeremiah. There will, there will always be priests to instruct us, the wise to give us counsel, the prophets to proclaim God's message. Let's bring charges against him and stop listening to what he says. And so I prayed, Lord, hear what I am saying and listen to what my enemies are saying about me. Is evil the payment for good? Yet they've dug a pit for me to fall in. And he did literally, he was thrown in a pit or a well. So, I mean, I just imagine, we try to identify what it would be like uh, to, to be Jeremiah during this time. And he would say, curse the day I was born, just like Job. Forget the day my mother gave me birth. Curse the one who made my father glad by bringing him the news. It's a boy, you have a son. Why was I born? Was it only to have trouble and sorrow to end my life in disgrace? So soon after Josiah's son Zedekiah became king of Judah, the Lord told me to make myself a yoke out of leather straps and wooden crossbars and put it on my neck. Now here's what I found interesting. He puts this yoke on, and uh, we just consider the time frame here. So this happened uh, soon after Zedekiah became king. Okay, we read on another chapter. In the fourth year that Zedekiah was king, this man came along and took his yoke off and broke it off. Does that mean he wore it for three or four years? Okay, I won't go into the story of why he wore the yoke and the, the point that it was supposed to make. But, um, you know, God has his prophets do some unusual things sometimes to make a point. When we get to Ezekiel, we'll talk about how long he would lay on one side and then he would turn over and lay it on the other side. Again, a very difficult job description here. Okay, Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch went to a lot of work to write out a message. They gave it to the king. Okay, so the king sent to get the scroll. He took it, and it was read to the king and all the officials who were standing around him. It was winter, and the king was sitting in his winter palace in front of the fire. And when he finished reading three or four columns, the king cut them off with a small knife, threw them into the fire, kept doing this until the entire scroll was burned up. But neither the king nor any of his officials who heard all of this was afraid or showed any sign of sorrow. And if you just keep reading on from Jeremiah 36, God said, do it again write another long message. And so they had to rewrite it again. And again, the, the hardness here of, of the king in this case gets this message from God, just casually cuts it off, throws it in the fire. Okay, so they were furious with Jeremiah and they had him beaten and locked up in the prison house of Jonathan, the court secretary, whose house had been made into a prison. I was put in an underground cell and kept there a long time. And then they took me down by ropes into a well, which was in the palace courtyard. There was no water in the well, only mud, and I sank down into it. 
It is kind of interesting in the Bible, you know, uh, early on, the books of Moses, um, if you obey God, money, reward, God will bless you, you will prosper. And it seems like uh, that, that message, you know, we get into the New Testament, what is the reward according to Jesus? If I suffered, you will suffer. Pick up your cross and follow me. It, it seems like uh, the reward in this life is uh, for a follower of Christ is, is often uh, a path of uh, persecution. It certainly was for Jeremiah. Well, King Zedekiah had me brought to him, and he's getting desperate. And he said, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to tell me the whole truth. Well, I mean, he'd just been giving these messages that they're cutting into the fire and they're not paying any attention to, and it's kind of strange. I want you to tell me the truth. And I answered, if I tell you the truth, you will put me to death. And if I give you advice, you won't pay any attention. So King Zedekiah promised me in secret, I swear by the living God, the God who gave us life, that I will not put you to death or hand you over to the men who want to kill you. And then I told Zedekiah that the Lord Almighty had said, if you surrender to the king of Babylonian's officers, that's the message. Don't fight. Don't go after other nations to help you. Just surrender and everything will go well. If you surrender, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down. Both you and your family will be spared. But if you do not surrender, and I'll spare you the rest of the passage, but basically you'll be taken into captivity, your children will be killed, and, you know, that's exactly what happened to Zedekiah. His eyes were put out, his children were killed, and so on. And so he, he described to Zedekiah exactly what would happen. And kind of uh, weakly, here Zedekiah replied, I'm afraid of our own people who have deserted to the Babylonians. I may be handed over to them and tortured. And we can kind of imagine in contemporary times, so, you know, what is Gaddafi worried about and people like this, that people that he's done bad things to will come back and get him. And so he told Jeremiah, don't let anyone know about this conversation and your life will not be in danger. If the officials hear that I've talked with you, they will come and ask you what we said. They will promise not to put you to death if you tell them everything. Just tell them you were begging me not to send you back to prison to die there. A very weak king. Okay, so now we we come up to it, the Babylonian captivity. And so this was in the 10th month of the ninth year that Zedekiah was king. Um, And King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with his whole army and attacked Jerusalem. On the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's 11th year as king, the city walls were broken through. And just to give you an idea here of the time frame, okay, so the initial here when they surrounded, they laid siege to the city about mid-November 589 B.C., and then when they actually broke through, it was mid-July, 587 B.C. And again, we just imagine a city deprived of water, food, for that long a period of time. And so uh, the description here of people even eating each other uh, would appear to be accurate. Now, uh, here's something kind of surprising, though, and I just want to know how this came about. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded his commanding officer, Nebuchadnezzar, to give the following order. Go and find Jeremiah and take good care of him. Do not harm him, but do for him whatever he wants. Now, how in the world is Nebuchadnezzar, does he even have Jeremiah on the radar screen? Okay, why would he have any interest in in Jeremiah? Anyone have any ideas? We're not told in the Bible, so we're kind of speculating here. Was Nebuchadnezzar, did he have... um, a good person that was kind of at his ear in Babylon. Daniel. 
Okay, and, and Daniel even quotes some things from Jeremiah, the 70-year prophecy and things like that. And so I think it's reasonable to speculate here that perhaps Daniel had talked to Nebuchadnezzar and he knew, well, there's one good person there, the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, make sure you, you take care of him. Okay, so this commanding officer took me aside and said, the Lord your God threatened his land with destruction and now he has done what he said he would. Now, isn't this interesting? We've got a Babylonian who would seem to be quite familiar here with the whole story, that God had threatened destruction, now he's done what he said he would. All this happened because your people sinned against the Lord and disobeyed him. We have a Babylonian kind of uh, describing what actually happened. And now I am taking the chains off your wrists and setting you free. If you want to go to Babylonia with me, you may do so, and I will take care of you. But if you don't want to go, you don't have to. You have the whole country to choose from, and you may go wherever you wish. Now, we just imagine here, Jeremiah, around the age of 65. Uh, I mean, if anyone deserved a vacation, don't you think uh, Jeremiah here could, should uh, get a Hawaiian vacation and a gold watch or something like that? I mean, he's done, right? People haven't listened. It's, it's all over. Everything's destroyed. Okay, and, and this, is, this is where I find the story even gets really incredible. Because what happened is, he went to stay with Gedaliah. Now, Gedaliah was the governor that Nebuchadnezzar put in place to kind of uh, rule over the few people that were in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, you know, I'd like to go see the Hanging Gardens or something, but he just stuck around with these few people that were left. Okay, and the people initially seemed to, to maybe want to turn back to God. All the army leaders came with the people of every class and said to me, please do what we ask you. Pray to the Lord our God for us. Pray for all of us who survived. Once there were many of us, but now only a few of us are left, as you can see. Pray that the Lord our God will show us the way we should go and what we should do. And I answered, very well then. I will pray to the Lord our God, just as you have asked. And whatever he says, I will tell you. I will not keep back anything from you. And then they said to me, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness. This is sounding promising. Against us, if we do not obey the commands that the Lord our God gives you for us, whether it pleases us or not, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are asking you to pray. All will go well with us if we obey him. This is the first time in the book where it seems like anyone responds at all to Jeremiah's message. Okay, well, here's what happened. Ten days later, the Lord spoke to me. So certainly God hasn't given up. Okay, he's still giving a message. And so I called together Johanan and the army leaders who were with him and all the other people. I said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me with your request, has said, if you are willing to go on living in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not pull you up. The destruction I brought on you has caused me great sorrow. Stop being afraid of the king of Babylonia. I am with you and I will rescue you from his power because I am merciful. I will make him have mercy on you and let you go back home. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, but God knows that uh, these, these are rebellious people, so he makes sure they get the message. Just as my anger and fury were poured out on the people of Jerusalem, so my fury will be poured out on you if you go to Egypt. Now, this will be our subject next time, God's anger. Now, in, in the story of Jerusalem, just what we've read, how was God's anger poured out? Well, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians. Okay, so we can try to build a picture on what does God's anger really look like in practice, but here he's warning them, don't go back to Egypt. You will be a horrifying sight. People will make fun of you and use, use your name as a curse. You will never see this place again. 
Okay, so stay here and turn to me. I'll bless you. I'll be with you. The king of Babylon will have mercy on you. Go to Egypt. It's going to be worse than you can imagine. Okay, that's going to seem pretty clear, right? What the, the choice for these people that are left. And then Azariah and Johanan and all the other arrogant men said to me, this is really where it gets depressing. You are lying. The Lord our God did not send you to tell us not to go and live in Egypt. Baruch, who was uh, Jeremiah's scribe, has stirred you up against us so that the Babylonians will gain power over us and can either kill us or take us away to Babylonia. So, you know, despite all this evidence, you would, you would think they would finally turn around, but they didn't. And then Johanan and all the army officers took everybody left in Judah away to Egypt together with all the people who had returned from the nations where they had been scattered, the men, women, children, the king's daughters. They took everyone whom Nebuzaradan, the commanding officer, had left under the care of Gadaliah, including Baruch and me. So poor Jeremiah now has to go to Egypt with these people who have completely and thoroughly rejected God. They disobeyed the Lord's command and went into Egypt as far as the city of Taphanes. Okay? It gets even more surprising, though. So they're, now they're off to Egypt. Okay, again, you would think Jeremiah is, is finally done. But no. The Lord spoke to me concerning all the Israelites living in Egypt. I mean, these people are still getting a message. Isn't that kind of surprising? God is still sending prophecy, still trying to reach them. And here's the message. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, said, You yourselves have seen the destruction I brought on Jerusalem and on all the cities of Judah. Even now they're still in ruins and no one lives there because their people have done evil and have made me angry. They offered sacrifices to other gods and served gods that neither they nor you nor your ancestors ever worshipped. I kept sending you my servants, the prophets, who told you not to do this terrible thing that I hate, but you would not listen or pay any attention. Okay, and this is the last uh, slide here from Jeremiah. You would not give up your evil practices, so I poured out my anger and fury on the towns of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem, and I set them on fire. Again, who burned Jerusalem down? It's the Babylonians. They were left in ruins and became a horrifying sight as they are today. And so I, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, now ask why you are doing such an evil thing to yourselves. Do you want to bring destruction on men and women, children and babies, so that none of your people will be left? Why do you make me angry by worshiping idols, by sacrificing to other gods here in Egypt, where you've come to live? Are you doing this just to destroy yourselves so that every nation on earth will make fun of you and use your name as a curse? And I lied. This is the last slide. Here's the response of the people. Then all the men who knew that their wives offered sacrifices to other gods and all the women who were standing there, including the Israelites who lived in southern Egypt, a large crowd in all. So they're in, in agreement here. They said to me, we refuse to listen to what you have told us in the name of the Lord. We will do everything that we have said we would. We will offer sacrifices to our goddess, the queen of heaven, and we will pour out wine offerings to her, just as we and our ancestors, our king and our leaders used to do in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Then we had plenty of food. We were prosperous and had no troubles. And now notice, here's the mindset. But ever since we stopped sacrificing to the queen of heaven and stopped pouring out wine offerings to her, we have had nothing, and our people have died in war and starvation. Now, is it convincing as we read through the story? I mean, can, is there anything else God could have done in here? 
And that here, even at the very end, where Jeremiah is still out there in Egypt trying to reach the people, that the mindset is, boy, if only we'd been offering correct sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven, uh, Ishtar, that uh, then things would have gone well for us. Okay, so again, the, the power of a story here, um, I think this can say several things. Again, I mentioned uh, Jeremiah, um, from extra-biblical sources, was stoned to death in Egypt, probably after, imagine this large crowd. They've completely rejected God, and I'd like to think that maybe it happened at that time. Okay, so reading the Bible is a story. Now, one way of reading Jeremiah is um, we imagine God off in his throne, okay, kind of giving this message, maybe somewhat detached. Jeremiah, poor Jeremiah is down there suffering. Okay, can we really imagine God in human form living like Jeremiah? Well, again, he's a form of Christ, like a trusting lamb taken out to be killed. And if we have any doubt, I mean, uh, how is Jesus treated? God comes in human form, uh, and, and can't we see so many parallels? He gave a message like Jeremiah. He was rejected just like Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah didn't stop giving a message because he was tired or because God gave up. He stopped giving his message because they killed him. Okay, same thing with Jesus. Okay, he went to the very end and finally allowed his enemies to kill him. That's what silenced Jesus because he was finally put to death. Okay, and I think we would really only believe that God in, in some ways reflects Jeremiah in this story because of the life of Jesus, okay, who came as a, as a slaughtered lamb. Okay, so again, the, the story approach, the narrative approach to the Bible versus the approach that looks to get the right list of doctrines. And I'm not putting down doctrines. Doctrines are important. They're an important summary of key information. Okay, but if we're reading Jeremiah to, to come up with key little pluck texts here and there, uh, we really miss the, the big picture. Okay, so we have a key text here, God is love. Okay, it's probably the most important key text in the Bible, God is love personified. But do we believe that God is love because we have the key text? Or do we believe that God is love because we've got a story like Jeremiah and we see how far God was willing to go with people that would just had completely alienated him? Okay, we have the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, which maybe gets kind of diluted because it's read at weddings all the time. Okay, but God is love. God is the personification of love. So couldn't we substitute the word God here for love? Love is patient. Well, do we believe that God is patient because, again, we have a verse, an important summary verse? Uh, or do we believe it, again, because we've got stories like Jeremiah where, I mean, undeniably God is patient in the book of uh, Jeremiah. Okay, just reading on, love does not keep track of wrongs. Well, God certainly knew all the wrongs. He kept reminding the people, but he didn't hold it, hold it against them. He kept telling them, because of all the things you've done, turn back to me, I can heal you, all will go well. Okay, so it's, uh, you know, he's, he's not holding them against him. He's willing to forgive, willing to heal. Love is not self-seeking. And again, just in the life of Jeremiah, I mean, selfless. And also in the life of Jesus, selfless. Okay, willing to die for others, even enemies. Love is not self-seeking. Could we even say God is not self-seeking? Well, that, that's a difficult one to, concept, but love is not selfish. Love never gives up. And couldn't we say that is kind of the story of Jeremiah in a nutshell, Okay, that God never gave up until he had no one left to even give them a message because they'd finally uh, murdered his prophet. 
Okay, so next time we'll, we'll go back. There are just some incredibly uh, tantalizing uh, descriptions here in Jeremiah. We'll spend a few weeks going through that, but we didn't want to keep this story uh, kind of as the context for the things we'll be discussing. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the story, the story that um, in, a, in a vivid way, in a, in a way we can really put our hands on and feel and just imagine what actually happened with these people Um, A story that shows us of your goodness, of your love, of your faithfulness, that uh, your love for us is not like a dimmer switch that goes up and down based on our behavior, but that you seem always there, always willing uh, to do anything you can for us. So please help us to enter in more fully to this picture of you, uh, the type of God we see revealed in Jeremiah. Amen.